0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So in today's episode, we're celebrating the life and legacy and music of Steely Dan's Walter Becker, who died on September 3rd at the age of 67. In partnership with Donald Fagan, he was one half of one of the greatest bands of the 20th century, a band that ultimately wasn't even a band. It was a musical concept, an entity, maybe a golem, as Donald and Walter once kind of suggested. In a moment, we're going to hear from one of Steely Dan's longtime collaborators, engineer Elliot Shiner. And in the studio right now, I have Hank Steemer, David Brown, and Rob Sheffield. Hey, guys. Hey, Brian. Hey, Howdy. Brian. So, do we have Elliot on the air?
1: Yeah, I'm here.
0: Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: So, I know it's a rough week for everyone who who knew and, and loved Walter. Uh, I understand that you first met both Walter and Donald on a Jay and the American session before there even was a Steely Dan, isn't that right?
1: That's right. It was in, uh, I think, 1970. And they were uh, in the band, you know, for live kicks, but they also got contracted to uh, produce and arrange the latest album they were working on.
0: Do you remember having an, a first impression of Becker, whether it was at that Jam in American session or whether it was when you later came to actually w- really work with Steely Down on the Royal Scam? Like,
1: Well, they call him detracking for Royal Scam, and that's when I really got to know the guy as well. And as far as Walter, you know, it wasn't at that moment, but Walter taught me a lot of things I didn't know. You know, my initial impression of Walter was... A great guy to hang out with, a great guy. The music was something different than I had ever done. It wasn't anything like their first three, three records. It was it was somewhat different than, than the first three. So I learned a lot. Walter was, we became good friends. He was a very smart guy. So was Donald. And, uh, it, you know, I, I was taken by the two of them, you know, <laughs> I didn't think uh, nobody could ever put anything over on these guys.
0: There's a story that the song "Haitian Divorce" was actually inspired yes. by an incident in your life. Is that true?
1: Yes, it was. It uh, we we uh, we were working in New York, and we'd cut. Green earrings, and uh, what was the first cut on on green on that record? Kid Charlemagne. Kid, uh, Kid Charlemagne. Charlemagne, yeah, yeah. So w- we did those two, and I said, look, I have to go away next week. I- I'm going down to Haiti to get a divorce. <laughs> and Don- Donald looks at me and says, you what? I said, well, my accountant, my lawyer said, you need to get divorced. And they said the best place to do it is either Haiti or the Dominican Republic, whichever. Sometimes Haiti would be in line with the U.S., sometimes the Dominican would be. So that time it was Haiti, and I made arrangements to go down to Haiti. And when I came back, they both got on me right away. Well, what was it like? What's the country like? What's this about? How did it work out? And and it just went on from there. And I inspired the song. Obviously, a lot of it had nothing to do with me. Right. You know the lyrics. The lyrics. You know, <laughs> that's not what happened.
0: <laughs> but you must have been astonished by the finished product.
1: Yeah. I mean, at at some point, you know, I stopped working on the record, and they finished it in L.A. And Barney Perkins mixed the record, and I think by far um, the lyrics on that record are probably the best lyrics they've ever written. So when I when I heard that, I was you know I sat there in my apartment listening to the record, and I must have listened to it about a half dozen times that night because I couldn't believe what turned out of that.
0: Now, you know, we're talking to the guy who helped establish the sound of Steely Dan's latter-day records when their obsession with sonic and musical perfection became even more intense, and so you were responsible for having to meet those standards of perfection. How did that work? What did you see uh, in their drive to to make these things so tight and perfect and, and exactly to their vision?
1: Well, the idea of of everything being perfect fit in with what I did, but I didn't know how perfect. I didn't know how they really wanted it. And Walter this is when I started to learn from Walter. Um he explained what he, his concept was in terms of how a record should be, what it should sound like, and everything should be generally in the clear. And a lot of people interpreted that as, well, they didn't put much music on the records. You know, it was a lot of whole notes. It was a lot of, there wasn't much going on. Quite the contrary, there was an enormous amount of music going on. And and we just, you know, everything had to be kept clean. And it, it was that that forced me to do what I did with them. And it's sort of at the time, I didn't care at that moment, but after about two years, I realized I was put in a bag. You know, I was a Steely Dan guy. Hmm. And it, it was harder for me to do other kinds of music. They said, oh, well, he does Steely Dan. So. And it took a while to break out of that, but I can't ever say I didn't at the best time of my life with them.
0: They like to swap a lot of stuff, musicians, the, yeah.
1: They did, I, you know, when we were doing Gaucho, it was like, you would see, you'd come in one night and you'd see a band there, and the next night you'd come in and it was a different band. What what happened to the band from last night? (laughs) Oh, they couldn't play it
0: well. The song, the second arrangement, was supposed to be on Gaucho, and it it was famously erased. What was your involvement with that? I know you you were there for their attempts to re-record it. Were you also involved in the original recording of the, this is a song that I got to hear them play, a bunch of people got to hear them play it at the Beacon Theater a couple years ago. Um, but it's probably one of the most legendary lost songs of all time because it was completely lost. It was truly erased, uh, never released. That was,
1: yeah, that, that was the song for Gaucho. It was one of the very first things we recorded, and uh, they were so taken by what it sounded like and how it was played, and we used um, actually a different studio to record it in, And uh, different musicians than I was accustomed to working with, uh, some anyway, and they continued to work on the cut. And they didn't do anything else except do the overdubs on that cut. I was only involved in that track. And they had the whole thing finished. And a, a tech guy, a maintenance guy at one of the studios came in, And he was lining the machine for Donald and Walter to do overdubs on. And uh, instead of picking up a tone reel, he picked up the master. And that was the only master. So it wasn't on the reel all by itself. It was still on the original reel. He picked it up, thought it was tones, and he put tones on, erasing all the tracks. (laughs) And then he stopped the tape and all of a sudden he heard music <laughs> and he heard, I think, the last five or six bars of a fade. <laughs> and uh, that how the, that's how that ended up. And the way Gary described it is, Walter came in and uh, he said, well, I've got good news and bad news for you. And they said, okay, give us the good. You can go home now. <laughs> and he said, well, what was the bad? There's no more second arrangement. (laughs) So we ended up, because they loved this song so much, we ended up trying to record it again. We spent a couple of days, same studio, and it just didn't happen. What was your role
0: on Two Against Nature, their quote-unquote comeback album?
1: I did all the engineering and uh, all the track engineering, and uh, I mixed it. And...
0: What was it like to have them back together? What was their mood? What was Walter like at that point? He'd gone through a lot, and he was back. What was that like?
1: Well, the first day that Walter walked in, he was wearing uh, brown, uh, light brown corduroy pants and uh, a button-down shirt, and it was different than the guy I knew. I, I laughed for a minute, and uh, I looked at Walter. I said, gee, you look great, man. Hmm. And uh, we started talking, and it, there was no difference. Regardless of what had happened, he was the same guy, and his attitude was the same guy about what everything should sound like.
0: Before we let you go, the one of the things that's so interesting about Walter and, and Steely Dan is this, as we were saying, is that th- they were as much sort of an entity and an idea as a band. They were composers, but they had no particular attachments to playing anything. Uh, Walter was a great guitar player, but he was just as happy, even on his solo records, to have other people play the solos. Uh, he was the bass player in the original band, but then wasn't always the bass player. So, how did you see his relationship to his his actual musicianship, his, his playing, and, and what it? What was your perception of him as a player specifically?
1: Well, he's a great, great player for me. I knew him as a bass player. Right. And, you know, a ton of times, he wouldn't play. He'd say, well, let's get Chuck Rainey. <laughs> Chuck Rainey will play the bass part in this. And, you know, you can't say no to Chuck. I mean, he was an unbelievable bass player. But what Walter would do was unbelievable as well. So I never understood why he just didn't go out and play it. It was like Donald would go out and play piano for the- Most of it, but you know, I felt like Walter should be playing bass on this, and he turned out to be an unbelievable guitar player too. In the studio, at that point, he wasn't playing anything live, you know, but he was a great, great guitar player. All the notes that came out were so unusual.
0: That was Elliot Shiner, who happens to be one of the greatest engineers on the planet and work with Steely Dan extensively. Elliot, thanks so much for being here. And we'll be right back with a lot more about Walter Becker and Steely Dan. Today, we're celebrating the life and music of Walter Becker of Steely Dan. I have in the studio, David Brown, Rob Sheffield, and Hank Steamer. Hank, a few years ago, talked to Walter Becker in a really unusually sort of Affable and revealing interview one of the things that's unusual is Walter didn't do many interviews solo They were sort of like the Cohen brothers the Steely Dan even though they weren't uh, You know brothers technically uh, But they didn't do a lot of things apart. They didn't do interviews apart and I think by breaking Walter off from Donald uh, and talking about his solo Album and asking a bunch of Good questions Hank uh, got some Great stuff well did that interview stand out In your memory before this this death or Was it just revisiting now that kind of made it
2: yeah, it definitely did. I mean, I was very surprised at the time by how forthcoming he was and how willing he was to just kind of sit there and go through it. I remember asking a bunch of questions about his then new solo album, Circus Money, which we were talking about before. And we sort of went through that and I was kind of expecting that maybe I'd throw in a Steely Dan question or two and that would be that. But, I, you know, I think we, we spent something like an hour and a half together. I remember we were in like a rehearsal room in SIR where Steely Dan was about to do one of their, their weeks at the Beacon, um, and and you know, the band was kind of you know, setting up behind us or something, and I kept thinking that the, the plug was gonna get pulled, but he's like, No, let's just let's just keep talking and I just found like I found him to be like very straightforward in a way that, you know, again, like you said, and if you watch the, the Asia documentary, they're so kind of like evasive and snide and like in jokey and you feel like there's just this impenetrable You know force field around them of sarcasm or 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 just it would be so difficult contempt often yeah yeah and i found him to be like almost the absolute opposite of that he was very sincere very you know very straight in his answers and he seemed to be willing to kind of like explain you know what steely dan were trying to do just in terms of this this whole thing about what happens when you when you pair like you were discussing like this really pristine music with these extremely esoteric, you know, sometimes very disturbing lyrics and what that tension was like.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, so I wanted to play a cu- just a couple minutes of, of Hank Steamer and Walter Becker. Uh, I should mention that this interview was originally conducted for uh, Time Out New York, and you can go to timeout.com slash New York to find the full interview. But let's hear a couple minutes of Hank Steamer and Walter Becker.
2: Can you give just a sort of like nutshell breakdown, And maybe there's not something so easily summarized, summarize, but like the division of labor in Steve Legan Like, it's hard hard for an outsider to
3: know. Yeah, uh, like most of those uh, partnerships like that, that run for a certain amount of time, and, uh, you know, ours has run for a pretty long time. One of the reasons is that the division of labor is very ad hoc, so whatever needs to be done, sometimes I've got something to start with, sometimes Donald's got something to start with. Sometimes we really work very closely, collaboratively, on you know every little silly millimeter of the, of the, the writing of the song and certainly of the records, and sometimes less so. Um, and so over the over the course of the partnership, I think we've done all sorts of different things different ways, and uh, probably that still is changing in a way, because I think if I had to uh, fight, can sort of uh, speculate on Donald's behalf. I think, in a way, there is a level of perfection, polish, sophistication, and abundance of detail and structural stuff that he wants uh, in, in, uh, in wants to hear in his music that I sort of ran out of patience to do more I just you know my attention span is not that good anymore right, right, right. and uh, and I, I don't necessarily believe in that you know I sort of believe more that the uh, maybe the lyrics somewhere I say this the perfect this is the enemy of the good
0: so again that was Hank steamer talking with Walter Becker I thought it's really interesting and even moving to hear one of Rock's most notorious perfectionists. Assail his own perfectionism. There, you know, it's it feels like personal growth.
2: <laughs> it was really interesting. Yeah, because you do think of the two of them as as extremely, you know, of one mind in that whole attitude towards a recording, just having to be, you know, you ha, if it has to be done fifty times, it has to be done fifty times. But it's funny, there was reggae playing in the background. He said that he was listening to a lot of dub and reggae at the time of that record, and 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 he did play bass more on that record, mm. and he seemed to be getting more into this idea of just like getting back to kind of being a musician and getting kind of zoning out and, and playing a groove and just getting into that more like kind of organic way of looking at it. Walter Becker's first solo album, how many tracks of whack? I can never remember how many
0: tracks of whack uh, is it? I believe it's 11. <laughs> 11, 11. <laughs> tra- 11 <laughs> tracks of whack um, is very interesting on that note in the sense that the sound quality and performance quality sometimes is almost demo like deliberately. So from what I understand it was, it was a, a, a sort of a middle finger to the last musical project he had fully been involved in which was gaucho it was like the anti-gaucho in some ways so obviously this that notion of the of the perfect tormented him almost in some ways rob what did you take away from hearing that brief clip of Walter becker talking
4: well, apart from just the astounding nature of of whatever kind of mojo that you had to, to get him to, to discuss the working methods of Steely Dan in, in in a way that sounds it's it's funny after you know reading your words and hearing him say it and how casual it seems and it's almost like he's pulling the curtain behind because there was so much mystique around yeah what they did and who was doing what and how little interest they had in any kind of cult of personality. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, David Brown is working on a piece about Walter Becker's life for the next issue of Rolling Stone. What are you learning so far uh, without giving it perhaps all away or or give it all away, I don't care. you um, getting any scoops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
5: Well, you know, it's a fascinating story to report because, uh, as Rob just mentioned, the mystique of that band uh, really extended to Walter in particular. I mean, I can't, and you guys can, we can debate this, but was there another... Made, member of a major rock band about whom we knew so little. It's a great point. Becker, what did his parents do? His his, uh, his father worked in like a, a paper shredding sort of company here in New York and it, and his parents split up very early. Mm. And his mother moved back to Germany. And so Walter was kind of raised here by his dad wow. and, and his grandmother. And uh you know I was speaking with an old friend of his who thinks that a lot of his dark sense of humor kind of came from that. It was an antidote to growing up in that kind of environment, your mother's gone, you know, and and I think what's been really interesting too is um, talking to people who knew him in Hawaii. You know, he basically after Gaucho, he had a really dark period there in the late seventies, early eighties. Heroin addiction. Yeah. Heroin addiction. His girlfriend OD'd in his apartment. He had a bad car. It was a he was hit by a cab and he retreated to Hawaii, and that, that whole period is very interesting to me, and you know, I've, I've tracked down some people who like, ran his studio there in Hawaii, and, and the whole evolution that he went through of, uh, without giving too much away, of like cleaning up, and uh, getting slowly back into production, and let's not forget one of the first records he did, China Crisis. Yeah. And I thought it was uh, telling detail that he, he built a studio out there that um, didn't have plumbing, so he had an outhouse. Huh. <laughs> and in the outhouse was where he hanged his hung his uh, Asia gold record plaque, which was slowly <laughs> oxidizing. <laughs> wow! And I thought that was so steely, Dan. But, but that, <laughs> yeah. that that outhouse had perfect acoustics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: yes. So Walter Becker, again, yeah, I didn't know what his parents did. Right. He was at Bard at the age of seventeen, and I think flunked out by the age of seventeen and a half. Right. Um, and he he was both a guitar player and a bass player early on. It sounds like he. At some point, he abandoned guitar as a teenager for the bass, but then went back on guitar. and, and Fagin describes the first time he ever saw him; he would be playing BB King licks, basically, with with a lot of guitar distortion. And at the time, that that struck Fagin as very unique for a young white kid.
5: Yeah, he was um, he was clearly um, a music head. I mean, things you're learning again also about him is. Uh, how incredibly well-versed, you know, you talk to people who, who how, how incredibly well-read he was, and he would just riff on everything from, uh, you know, Samuel Beckett to the, the Manhattan Project to whatever, you know, uh, he, he read everything a certain author read, and he can just totally pick pick things up. And um, speaking of, of that musicianship, though, it, it reminds me of a story I heard that I, I didn't know this, actually, from the transition that Steely Dan made from being a, a road band to a studio band. And everybody kind of says, well, they got tired of touring and they, they just wanted to kind of become a studio band. And one of those players, Dean Parks, guitar player, said that uh, what happened was that evolution started on Pretzel Logic, Logic because they were, um, you know, let's not forget Countdown to Ecstasy, their second album was a, was a flop. Yeah, and, and they went into making Press Logic, being told if this record's not a hit, you're you're getting dropped. And, so they uh, made the the title song a blues track about exactly. time, about <laughs> time travel. That that's and and yeah. what well it, Dean Parks played in the record, and he said what Walter and Donald said, then was like, you know what, if we're gonna be dropped, let's make the best record we can and just get the best players. And and that was kind of the, the more so than Katie Lide. it really kind of started with that record.
0: What insight did you get in reporting this story for Rolling Stone, David, into the. Relationship between Becker and Fagan, and how it maybe evolved or didn't evolve over the years, and whether there was some distance or not distance uh, in the later years.
5: How did all that work? Yeah, that's still uh, that reporting still somewhat in progress, but I think you, you kind of get these these senses that sense that they would drift apart. And then realize and do things on their own. I realized they could really use the other person, like the way the way Walter came in and helped save uh, Donald's Kamakuriad record, which was running into some problems. And they, so they they did that. But also to follow up on on what Hank was saying too, this sense that by the time of of Circus Money, um, I spoke with Larry Klein, who produced that record, and he reiterated basically that what Walter was saying that he was getting a little tired of that fussy production thing and, and that Walter really enjoyed touring he enjoyed playing live more than in the 70s but I think you had the sense that it was a you know like anything after all those years it's almost like a business relationship at that point
0: mm. Rob Sheffield you wrote a in very interesting tribute to Becker the other day on RollingStone.com and one of the points you made was the, the classic albums documentary on Asia uh, I think was the one we're referring to that, that now exists that people like to pick out little bits of it on youtube and play them over and over again but your point was that until that debuted on vh1 i think it was also a a british documentary whatever before that people didn't even their fans didn't really have a good sense of who these guys were at all and you you felt that this
4: really changed that absolutely the before and after is is really kind of astonishing As, as david said such a key point that there was no member of a major famous rock band about whom we knew less I mean all this stuff about his personal life forget any of that we didn't know any of that but we didn't even know what he did on the records, the sort of division of labor. Uh, they they were proud of of not having any ego invested in that. He told Cameron Crowe in his Rolling Stone cover story in 1977, he'd be happy not to play on his own records. That, that It's almost like it, it was a failure for them to reveal anything about themselves. All they wanted to share was the music. So to see this special in 1999, after however many years anybody had been listening to Steely Dan and suddenly see how they interacted as two people dissect their own music and actually hearing them talk out loud about it was really kind of shocking. He, he, he'd always been this person kind of lurking in the corner of the photo that was reluctantly somewhere in, in the album sleeve.
0: Well, the way we think about a rock star is someone wanting the spotlight, is someone... A great guitar player is a guitar hero who steps out, and sometimes it's the opposite. There are certain Aerosmith records where apparently Joe Perry didn't play the solo and studio musicians did, but you, they want you to think Joe Perry played it. This is the literally the opposite. <laughs> they, and I, I think Becker meant it w- that he didn't care whether he played stuff. He and Hank was pointing out the other day, and, and it says in that classic albums documentary, um, Becker and Fagan would write parts. Becker might write the bass part for for Peg. Um, but give it to someone else to play and, and and enhance. And it's this fascinating egolessness combined with this obvious sort of slight smug arrogance <laughs> interpersonally. Um, and also from what Fagin said, and I think Elliot was hinting at earlier, is there was a s- perhaps a certain amount of insecurity as well about his own playing, I, I it, it seems like. Because he is, he was, as anyone who's seen him play with Steely Dan in the later years, an incredible musician, a great bass player, a, 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 an absolutely searingly guitarist, so it, it's a little peculiar in some ways that he was willing to step back to that degree.
4: What do you make of that? It's interesting, it's, it's funny sort of, Hank, what you were saying before about how he was sort of belatedly discovering the joys of being a musician and just yeah. joining out and playing on a groove, and that's so uh, different from sort of how Steely Damn presented their music in all through the 70s, that they were uh, very proud of almost getting people who could do it better than they could. Mm-hmm. It's almost like if they played something themselves, if it, it was almost like a surrender for them. Th- they always said Donald Fagan only sang because he was the person in the room who could sing, but he didn't want to.
0: One of my favorite anecdotes, and you probably know this one, is the uh, the
2: drum machine on Gaucho and Wendell too. Do you wanna talk about that a little bit? Well, wasn't it that they they started, found some like hitches in the drum track and they actually had to build, they they had to build this new like contraption that let them have the most pristine time?
0: And they had to program this thing, I mean, this is like 1980 or 1979. They had to program this thing, this drum machine, in the most primitive, laborious way you could possibly imagine. I think it involved like, you know, filling in a, putting in a little paper with marks in it or writing numbers on it I mean it was it was insane that they did that and that, the drums you hear on the song Hey 19 are a primitive drum machine yeah. and you'd never know and to achieve that back at that point is, is it was a sample driven drum machine that's the difference there were drum machines going back to like the 70s on Plenty album but this was a sample driven drum machine which is why you can't really Tell if you listen very closely on a really great system, you can tell that there's something slightly tinny about the drums because of the low sample rate. But anyway, that kind of illustrates the admirably insane lengths that David Dan will go to.
2: It's sort of surprising though, because like like considering their their love for jazz, and like like clearly they wanted at least some of that like improvisational energy, even if the, you know they might have had to work over these tracks like time and time again. But like you know, especially like on Asia, like if you think about like Steve Gadd's playing. on on the title track or Wayne shorter like they clearly wanted a little bit of that wildness, but they wanted it to be like very Carefully like monitored how far it was gonna go, you know, it's kind of like an an interesting play between You know perfection and something else.
0: Yeah, and something like real and in the years the guitar solo was partially written and partially improvised So it's this fascinating balance and I think that's part of one of the many things that makes Stilly Dan so great. We were talking during the break about the subversiveness of Steely Dan, which can be summed up as follows. It's can be extremely smooth music paired with extremely perverse lyrics that a lot of people sometimes seem to miss and that's how they ended up in the yacht rock category when actually they're more likely to, you know, burn your yacht down and, you know, <laughs> kidnap someone. Um, but how do you think that worked and how much how much of it do you guys think was Walter? Because something like the Nightfly, as soon as Fagin went solo, suddenly he's all nostalgic. And as soon as Becker joins back with Fagin, they, they make Two Against Nature, which has some of their sickest songs. So what do we think?
4: Well, something that was weird about The Nightfly, which was the first time any of us heard Fagin solo, was, was how warm and affectionate and humorous he was. And, and that sort of, you could tell the sort of acerbic side of Steely Dan that wasn't necessarily coming from him. The Nightfly was a really surprising record if you'd been listening to Steely Dan all through your childhood and you know it, it's a very different sort of moody record.
0: Hank and I were debating or discussing yesterday the issue of Walter's feelings towards Steely Dan's characters, especially the Losers. Um, I w- on that note, I, I saw that Becker was asked for advice for writers and he actually he quoted John Gardner from The Art of Fiction, certainly the only rock lyricist I've ever seen do that and he pointed to frigidity as a thing to avoid. And that's defined in this particular case as like not having enough sympathy for your characters, which is really interesting because as Hank mentioned yesterday, there is, you could read some contempt for like the, the guy in Deacon Blue. I mean, you could hear a little bit of contempt if you read it one way.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, they certainly have some, you know, despicable despicable characters in their songs. I, mean, I guess I think of something like Babylon Sisters where I think, you know, you're, you're kind of meant to be disgusted a little bit by by the narrator of that song, but but at the same time, they work pretty hard to allow you to sympathize in some way with these people. I mean Deacon Blues is is an interesting example because that's it has like a warmer, like more kind of nostalgic it's like a bittersweet song. There's clearly a little bit of like mockery going on of this character who kind of like the mythic forms of loserdom that a person could aspire to wanting to be, you know, <laughs> romanticizing the life of a jazz musician in this kind of like, you know, very outdated, cliched way. But I, I think that when you listen to Deacon Blues, like you do you do feel for the character. And I think it's them in some way. I think it's them as
0: kids fantasizing yeah. about being, you know, jazz musicians, being cool, moving to the city. So that's where the sympathy comes in. But they also are mocking themselves and, and pretty viciously in yeah, some way. Yeah, because knowing that yeah.
2: they were on the outside of that, that they were like, you know, kind of like suburban kids looking in, in a way.
0: David, in, in your reporting, you're
2: getting this arc
0: of Walter Becker. He had a tremendous rock and roll life story. He had this like Dickensian dark childhood, um, and then had a terrible addiction, and then came back from it and re-embraced life, and then after his divorce, came to New York, and then what maybe happened there?
5: Uh, yeah, he. it sounds like he really uh, had quite the opposite of the rock and roll life in hawaii I mean, he was like surfing and mountain biking and yoga his wife isn't he met and married a woman up there who's a yoga teacher so i mean it was the op- totally opposite of his uh new york life like i said as we said earlier he took gradual steps back into music and and that went on he opened a studio you know in in, uh, in 91 and uh he just it seemed like he was uh, pretty content there, but then of course you know he gets back into the Steely Dan groove of things by the mid '90s, and they slowly start touring again. And uh, you know one of his one of his friends and wives said, yeah, the, the sort of the New York Walter was starting to come back. He shut down the studio in two thousand five and moved to New York. Uh, we started spending more time here, and it almost like he did kind of come full circle, like. It, you know the, the cynical walter started to come out more he seemed like a little more a little warmer a little more down to earth in hawaii and he was sort of getting back into that old into back into that new york groove mm. thing which was an interesting yeah it's a really interesting arc and he still had he, apparently i think he passed away in hawaii so he still had that property but um, what happened along the way you know i think i think the touring rock and roll lifestyle the you know just the, just the, the eating on the road people said you know it's just not a, it's not a healthy lifestyle
0: yeah. Again, you know, don't want to make this point too many times, but it's pretty incredible that one half of one of the biggest and most important bands of all time, we basically knew nothing about, <laughs> you know, and that's in a way really an admirable achievement at, on his part, you know, in the same way that the actual members of Kiss dissolved into like sort of the, their iconic images, Steely Dan just dissolved into the music they never really had a visual image other than their album covers they never as someone said they never had a cult of personality they were just pure music uh donald fagan made a joke in some interview that when they were first going on reunion tours that the audience was going to have all sorts of associations with the music they were going to they wouldn't really be listening they'd just be thinking of you know the high school date they went on when that song was playing and and donald was supposedly joking but he said uh you know I have no associations with the music. I just hear the music. It's my laser focus. The laser focus is what it's all about. And I, I sort of, it was a joke, but I sort of wonder if, if that was his approach. Like, it, it, it was never about anything but the music. It wasn't about, they, they attached no iconography to it. It's a fascinating thing, I think.
5: Just think, I'm sorry, just think of their album covers. How many, yeah. how many of them have their photos?
4: When they were on the cover of Rolling Stone, it was like a painting of a girl on a World War II bomber, because they couldn't even, like, you <laughs> That's know. That's a great point. I mean, they had no interest in the cult of personality, and you see the photos, you know, in the album sleeves, and, you know, it, it, they're really intimidating, staring at the photographer saying, get this done. Well,
0: yeah, there were some cool vibes in those photos. J- Jody Pacman, our, our creative director, was showing me some pictures for the Upcoming issue of Rolling Stone for David's article, and there's some really cool pictures of Becker. Yeah, projecting that attitude, a very different. It's not a friendly attitude. You were you were starting to describe that attitude uh, or what you saw in in their
4: stance in those pictures, Rob. It's it's funny that it was there in their music to hear. If if you were listening deep, like David said, they were very subversive. They they had massive radio hits, top ten hits. It's beyond bizarre that Time Out of Mind was a. Actual top forty hit uh, in nineteen eighty with the chorus "Tonight When I Chase the Dragon," uh, A nineteen was a top ten hit. It's it's really strange how popular they were and how ubiquitous they were, and there are all these dark themes through the music that you could hear or not hear. And, and let's not forget
5: they didn't tour for twenty years. Yeah. I mean, you know, they the, most of the their lifespan in the seventies they just. They didn't tour and so like they weren't even you wouldn't even see them you wouldn't see concert photos they wouldn't see in Rolling Stone a review of the Asia tour at the Garden or whatever <laughs> that's funny there yeah. <laughs> was Asia the album that they
0: rehearsed for like three times and then killed it I believe so I believe there was there almost was an Asia
5: tour they almost did it they almost um, did it and then like the, there was some problem with the musicians I think the, the musicians wanted to be like paid money <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and
0: then, they were, then they were like so but th- there is that fascinating thing where yeah Steely Dan uh, you know they, they did tour early on and you can hear some there's that I think live at the record Plant bootleg of like the 74 version of the band that's really cool it's very like raw different version of the thing but then yeah didn't tour but then became a road machine in their later years so there's no other band that has that story. They they truly have, I I think, the the most unique story in rock and roll. Rob, in the end, what makes you a Steely Dan fan? What do you love most about them?
4: The music is just, it's so full of mystery, so full of uh, presence. It's really, it's complex music, but also very pleasurable. They're truly, you know, one of my favorite bands, and I think I came to them late. Did you guys
0: come to them late in your music-loving careers? Rob, early... I came to them like as a, as an adult actually, because I, I I fully, Fagan once said that you can, rock and roll fans will only tolerate a tiny bit of jazz in their music before they're fully alienated, and it was that <laughs> tiny bit of jazz that that fully alienated me until I was like 25. Um, but I think we've learned that Walter Becker has one of the most interesting stories in rock and roll, one of the most untold stories in rock and roll. David Brown is about to tell it in the uh, next issue of Rolling Stone. So no pressure there, David.
2: <laughs> 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 Thanks, <Brian.
0: laughs> a, f- a First draft, a first draft. Um, and this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week on Friday at 1 p.m. on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. And in the meantime, you should definitely download us as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to us as a podcast as well. And if you get a chance, leave us a really nice review on iTunes. We'd appreciate it. And we will see you next week.